This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Deputy Director of the Americas Program and Director of the U.S.-Mexico Futures Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Was how professional the Mexican but government. are we ready? Long-term I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. It's not a one-size-fits-all border. And even with infrastructure, it's still going to be a personnel-intensive uh, area to patrol. Trade, tariffs, immigrants, and the Great Wall of Texas. My returning guest today is Matthew Rooney, director of the George W. Bush Institute and Economic Growth Initiative, and also an ex-Foreign Service officer at the U.S. Department of State with overseas experience in Germany, El Salvador, and Africa. Welcome back, Matt. Thanks so much, Richard. So among your august accomplishments, I neglected to mention that you were once my boss for a while back in Berlin, back in the mid-90s, back when some of our listeners were in diapers. If you do Those that. were the days. Those right? were the days, right? Yeah, not adult diapers, actual diapers. So, right. <laughs> um, so we could do the podcast in German if you want, Matt. Machen wir. Das wäre schlimm. So, Matt, you've been doing a lot of writing recently on, on a whole range of issues, North American competitiveness, NAFTA, USMCA, migration, the border. So, you know, we could talk about anything. We could talk about how I was a model employee, but that would, that would be a very short podcast. That would podcast. be a quick conversation. <laughs> a quick conversation. <laughs> so why don't we start talking about the reason why we have a shutdown right now, of course, is the issue of the wall. Uh, President Trump wants, what, $5.6 billion thereabouts for a wall, and uh, Congress, specifically Democrats, don't want to give it to him. Let's assume for a minute here that President Trump succeeds. Uh, he gets funding for a wall. Not only does he get $5.6 billion, he gets whatever he needs to build a wall. And the wall gets built. What would that do to, uh, quote unquote, normal sort of legal transactions and business on the border? Because I know you've, you've written a fair amount on border infrastructure, sort of the normal ebb and flow of trade, migration and so on across the southern border. Give us an, an idea of what effect would that have, if any, on, on the U.S. southern border. Yes, that's a great question. It seems to be one, one thing that's important to keep in mind and, and kind of concede to oneself, regardless of where you stand in this debate over a wall at the border, is that uh, we've been building things that many people would describe as walls along the border for quite a long time. Uh, certainly since 9-11, uh, you know, there's been a, a concerted effort over the, over the course of the last two decades to uh, put up barriers that would imp- make it more difficult for people to just walk across the border. And, and so in the discussion about a wall, I think it's important to recognize that there is a wall uh, in a number of places along the border. There are all kinds of barriers. There's about 900 miles, almost 1,000 miles of physical barriers that have already been built. Um, and there are lots of places where a literal wall makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, in, 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 in a, in a uh, heavily populated urban area like El Paso Juarez, for example, where there are literally neighborhoods that touch one another, if you want to stop people from walking across there, you're going to need a serious physical barrier. Uh, in other places that are remote, uh, remote from highway infrastructure on both sides of the border, um, you know, where there's a river, where there's a gorge, uh, or you know, extremely mountainous area, or so on. There's a reasonable debate as to what's the best way, the most cost-effective way to secure that stretch of border. And so, I think um, if if we're talking about adding to the walls that currently exist, it's 
possible that there are places where additional walls or barriers or fences or whatever you want to call them would make sense. Um, I personally am skeptical that in a place like uh, the Big Bend of Texas, for example, where there's a national park on our side of the border and actually a national park on the Mexican side of the border, such that um, you know, road infrastructure and towns and so on are 150 or 200 miles from the river, and the river itself is in the bottom of a gorge. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine where you would put a wall, uh, and 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 I, I think there's there there needs to be a case made, which I haven't seen made, uh, that there are actually people who are making that 200 mile hike on both sides of the border and. F- crossing the border there. Uh, there's places out in, in Arizona where the border runs through a desert that is, again, hundreds of miles on both sides, extremely difficult to cross. Uh, it's, you, know, you, can, you can drive to the, to the border on the U.S. side in some of those places in a nice air-conditioned four-wheel drive vehicle, but if you're walking, um, that's a pretty good barrier. Uh, and, I, and I think there's other and more cost-effective ways to prevent people from crossing there than building a wall literally across those spaces. So uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a kind of a, a nuanced debate. Theoretically, if you were to build a wall but maintain ports of entry, which is implicitly the plan, uh, everybody always talks about having a nice, beautiful gate in the wall, uh, then it shouldn't intrude too much on legitimate trade because legitimate trade, by definition, flows through the ports of entry. And if the ports of entry are functioning properly, then legitimate trade uh, should be okay. Uh, and the and the main um, the main impact would be on individuals, small numbers of people, relatively small numbers of people, who cross the border on foot. Um, but let me let's assume there's a funding trade-off here, right? So let, let's assume that money that would have gone to improve their ports of entry by adding inspectors or new lanes instead goes to building a wall. Then it's a little bit more of a, uh, you know, a, not as great a cost-benefit uh, because as I understand it, right, part of what um, U.S. businesses or Mexican businesses, for that matter, are dealing with is the slow amount of time it takes to transit the border Usually coming from Mexico to the United States, uh, where a tractor trailer will sit there for you know hours or yeah. sometimes more uh, before it can cross legally into the United yeah. States. Yeah. So if that were the trade-off, that would be unfortunate. Uh, and th- there's certainly a deficit of border infrastructure along both borders, by the way, U.S. Canada and U.S. Mexico border, where there is um, uh, you know a pending list of maintenance projects that need to be done, let alone expansion projects that could expand the throughput capacity of existing ports of entry. Uh, and then there's lots of uh, lots of reasons to suppose that there need to be additional ports of entry, again, from the economic and trade point of view, that we need ports of entry that are in slightly different places, perhaps, uh, you know, that can better serve the needs of the uh, the businesses that are shipping product across those borders. Um, so if that were the trade-off, that would be that would be truly unfortunate. Um, we've long argued that um, it's uh, it's odd and, and and hard to understand that North America, 25 years after NAFTA, uh, doesn't have any form of trilateral border infrastructure bank. Every other trade group in the world has a border infrastructure bank that exists for the purpose of making sure that border infrastructure gets built where it needs to be and and supports uh, supports the economy and supports trade. We don't have that. Um, and so who pays North for the America? ports? Is it individual states? Does Texas decide we're going to improve our port of entry in El Paso, or who pays for that now? It's a combination of things, and it depends on which border we're talking about. Uh, but basically, along the U.S.-Mexico border, um, 
border infrastructure gets paid for on our side out of the federal highway fund, which is apportioned to the states according to a formula based on state GDP and population and so on, not based on whether the state is a border state or not. So uh, the state of Texas receives its allocation from the federal highway fund on the same circumstances that the state of Kentucky receives its allocation. Obviously, Texas is larger because it's a larger state. But nonetheless, Texas doesn't get any extra for the fact that it's a border state. Uh, and so uh, any bit of investment in border infrastructure on the U.S. side has to slug it out in the state capital against highway improvements elsewhere in the state. Uh, and so it, there are moments where that's especially difficult. There's been some attempts made in recent appropriation cycles to kind of implicitly allocate some section of the funding for border infrastructure to encourage the border states to spend on border infrastructure. Um, but it's hard. It's hard. Uh, by definition, a piece of border infrastructure benefits a constituency that doesn't vote for you because it's on the other side of the border. Uh, and therefore, it can be hard to assemble a political coalition around a border infrastructure project. So, so that, Matt, that seems to be a kind of a gaping hole in our, in our policy tools, right? Because if, if, we, if the federal government says, you know, we really need to improve the flow of trade in California, Texas, and Arizona, therefore, we're going to make these ports of entries faster. But yet, in the, in the Texas State House, they can say, no, nah, actually, we'd much rather build a highway, you know, uh, a loop around Austin or Dallas or whatever. They can't earmark it? Is that what you're saying? They can't tell the state, this is how you have to spend this amount of money? So, so within, some, within some limits, you can, you can tell the state of Texas that they ought to spend a given percentage of their federal highway funds on border infrastructure. What's very difficult to do is say, I want to spend X amount in California and to take that away from Texas or to take it away from any other state. And so the ability that the United States has to um, set priorities along the border, across the entire length of the border, is, is very limited. On the Mexican side, most Mexican funding is, is federal funding that comes directly from the federal government to the project. And so the, the Mexican federal government can say, yeah, we definitely need to expand throughput at San Isidro, which is the border crossing between San Diego and Tijuana, and we don't, uh, over the next few years, want to spend any more on Laredo, Nuevo Laredo, whereas the U.S. government has a difficult time doing that. And that is a dysfunction. It makes it, it, makes it very difficult um, for the United States, first of all, to meet our neighbors, because Canada has the same federally driven process. So when the Canadians come or the Mexicans come and say, we want to expand throughput here, it's hard for the United States to commit over a long period of time to to match on our side of the border those investments. Now, we can, we've done it. The project at San Isidro actually is a long-term, high-ticket project to expand the throughput capacity of San Isidro that's been in train for several years, um, but it's politically very difficult to do. So I'm extrapolating from that that if we already have difficulty sort of upgrading and funding these existing port border points of entry upon which there is a fair amount of consensus – it's going to be really hard to actually build, uh, or you know, a, a physical wall across multiple states, given sort of the f the funding parameters and the discretionary ability of this, the individual states to to weigh in, right? I think that's right. I also think land ownership is going to be a, a significant issue. I mean, I think uh, a fairly large share of the land along the US, the Texas Mexico border is actually controlled by the federal government, so that's relatively easy. If the federal government wants to build a wall there. The federal government can do that, but most of the border, most of the land that touches the border in uh, New Mexico, Arizona, for example, uh, is privately owned, and so to build a wall there 
probably require the exercise of eminent domain, which means taking, you know, using federal power to take people's property away from them, um, they are unlikely to welcome that. I can't imagine the courts will have anything to say about that, right? Right. <laughs> and there's, there's also another thing that nobody really focuses on. It's a small problem. But in, in California, uh, there's actually an Indian reservation that straddles the border. Uh, and so there's it's it's a it's a, it's a tough problem because the the Indian nation, um, you know, has territory on the Mexican side of the border and on the U.S. side of the border. So it makes it very difficult to control the border in that space. Okay, we're going to shift the hard topic to an easy one, and that's tariffs. Uh, and so you you hey, wrote you wrote a piece <laughs> called uh, "Tariffs Are Great." if you like raising prices, undermining jobs, and inhibiting innovation. So I could just shorten the title to tariffs are great, right? And you'd be fine with that. Sure. <laughs> In this day and age, why not? <laughs> so let's talk through that. You know, um, we're, we're sort of still in the midst of a, some people might call it a tariff war, but certainly a tariff dispute with Mexico and Canada, um, kind of a hangover from the NAFTA negotiations, which have been completed, but yet we still have steel and aluminum tariffs uh, from the U.S. side. And we still have some countervailing tariffs, uh, the Mexicans on, uh, you know, dairy and um, other agricultural products, uh, uh, Jack uh, Daniels whiskey, of course, the most serious of all, right? Uh, but other things like that. In general, um, you know, what what are sort of the short, mid, and long-term effects of these tariffs? Uh, you know, they, they don't appear to have caused that much ripple yet. Mm. But walk us through what if a year from now, two years from now, these tariffs are still there? Yeah. So tariffs raise prices of things. And uh, these tariffs, particularly, for example, the steel and aluminum tariffs that the U.S. administration has levied uh, against steel and aluminum coming from everywhere in the world, um, those things uh, raise the cost of steel and aluminum to the input of everything that's manufactured with steel and aluminum, which is basically everything. Um, and, and as the Mexicans raise their retaliatory tariffs, well, that raises the cost of our products that we're trying to sell to Mexican consumers. And so uh, inevitably, higher prices uh, result in, in less demand. I mean, that's one of the iron rules of of economics, basically, you raise the cost of something, you get you get less of it, and so those 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 price increases will start to work their way into the prices of things like washing machines and cell phones and cars uh, as as time goes on, and um, and inevitably those price increases will get passed along in some form to the consumer. They get, and in fact, they get shared really between the consumer and the producer, but. In reality, uh, it's not the you know it's it's it, they're not cost free. It's not cost free to do these things. It actually, costs money. Somebody pays for that. So that's the immediate yeah, kind of right. short term effect. And I think you know we'll see that accumulate over the coming months. We've done a lot of discussion on this show talking about the updated NAFTA, the USMCA. Uh, real briefly, if you could sort of recap for the listeners, what are the major differences between the old NAFTA and the new NAFTA, the USMCA? And, and uh, how do you think those are going to play out in the, in the next few years? Yeah, so um, the way I think about it is uh, USMCA is uh, TPP 1.1 plus NAFTA 0. 0.8. And so that doesn't quite add to 2, therefore it's not NAFTA 2.0. So let me explain. Uh, under U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, agreement, what basically happened was kind of two things or, or several things. But one was to take... Uh, what had been agreed in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which 
as most of your listeners will know, is a, was a large trans-Pacific trade agreement that the United States originated actually uh, already in the Bush administration and that the Obama administration then brought to completion with a dozen other countries in the, in the Americas and in the Pacific, in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, and the United States pulled out of TPP uh, soon after President Trump took office. And so one of the objectives of the USMCA negotiation was to take the things that Mexico and Canada, who were members of the TPP, remain members of the TPP in, today, take the take a number of things that they had agreed to in the TPP context and implant them in the North American context. So that includes things like stronger protection for intellectual property rights. It includes um, disciplines on the activities of state-owned enterprises. It includes objectives for the protection of small business, a set of actually quite positive things that we had achieved under TPP uh, and which we're kind of clawing back with respect to Canada and Mexico uh, under USMCA. And I said at the outset TPP 1.1 because under USMCA we get slightly better access to the Canadian dairy market than we had under TPP. I think I think we got an additional 0.5% of the Canadian dairy market than they had given us in the TPP context. So that's 1.1. Uh, and then there were a set of objectives uh, which were kind of more purely Trump administration objectives, which are designed to or intended to uh, reduce the U.S. trade deficit with Mexico in particular, but to a lesser extent Canada. And so those things uh, are a series of commitments that were made to uh, shift, uh, to raise the threshold for North American origin content, particularly in cars, uh, for duty-free treatment. In other words, for a car to be imported into the United States duty-free today, it has to have 62.5% of its content originating from one of the three NAFTA countries. Um, under USMCA, that number will be 75%. Uh, and then there's another provision which says that um, I forget what exactly it is, 40% of the value of a vehicle has to have been produced in a factory that paid at least a $16 an hour wage. So that is intended to try to uh, disincentivize production in Mexico. And, the, and uh, those two provisions together, I believe, are designed to encourage the industry to move some segments of the production, 12.5% of the, of the value of a vehicle back to the United States. And so uh, whether that will be the result remains to be seen. Uh, USMCA hasn't been enacted yet, and we haven't seen yet how the private sector will respond to the environment, the policy environment that USMCA creates. So we'll see whether that's the actual result. If it is the result, um, the bottom line will be uh, that it will be more expensive, more costly to manufacture vehicles in the United States than it was before. If it were possible today to manufacture that 12.5% in a cost-effective fashion in the United States, it probably would be being done. Uh, so, so implicitly, therefore, uh, you're talking about raising the cost of manufacturing a vehicle in the United States. So that raises the sticker price eventually to some extent. And then the question is, does the consumer simply pay that? or? It does become more difficult for car manufacturers in the United States to sell cars to the consumer. And then more importantly, in my mind, and that's the second point in, in the discussion about tariffs that we started out with, um, more importantly is global competitiveness. How do you compete with the Japanese and the Koreans in markets like China, like Europe, big Latin American markets like Brazil and Argentina? How do you compete with them if your costs have gone up by some 
percent that you don't control. And um, and I think unspoken in this whole debate is um, the Chinese car market. And uh, at 1.4 billion people entering the middle class, that's a lot of cars. And uh, uh, when the dust settles on this whole process, are we going? Are U.S. car manufacturers going to be able to compete uh, selling cars to Chinese consumers? Uh, Fifty years from now, that will be the determinant of whether we still have a car industry. Uh, and and other things equal, my guess is that raising the cost of those cars is not the right way to go. But 50 years from now, Matt, you and I will probably both be dead. So we can, you know, we can be wrong now and no one will ever unearth this podcast, right? I, I want to be buried in my BMW. <laughs> um, all right. I said we weren't going to talk about the wall anymore, but actually we're, we're going to come back to border security. So in Washington, you can do that. It's called a pivot. You know, you're never wrong in Washington. You just pivot back, right, to, to something you want to talk about. Uh, of course, the Bush Institute is in, in Dallas, in Texas. So is, is there a distinct view from Texas that you can pick up having lived there? You're, you're from Texas and you live there now. In terms of, you know, uh, this is actually a big national uh, polarized debate. But is there a distinct Texan view on, I mean, Texas has accounts for what, almost half of the border, right? Yeah. Roughly. Uh, on border security, on migration, on trade with Mexico. And if so, you know, does that vary within the state? Or, or you know, people that live in El Paso, do they hold the same view as the people who live in Dallas, for instance? Um, or does it differ uh, significantly by uh, demographic group? Yes, that's a great question. And, and of course, Texas, you know, has um, kind of a kind of a st- what would you like? What would be the right way to put it? A storied history with Mexico, uh, you know, having having revolted from uh, from the Mexican Federation, established itself as an independent nation, and then thrown itself into the arms of the United States. I think, um, in all honesty, there's a level of ambivalence uh, about the border and about the proximity to Mexico in Texas that, in some ways, is is maybe a little more pronounced than it is in elsewhere in the country, both positively and negatively. Right? I think. You know, it's said in general that uh, concern about the border is inversely related to distance from the border. So the more the, uh, the is related to distance from the border. So the further you are from the border, the greater your concern about the border is. Uh, and you could you could probably say something similar within Texas. Uh, in general, I think you know we live on the border. Dallas is several hundred miles from the border, but still, you know, we're a border state. Um, uh, I think something like 85 percent of U.S. Mexico trade. Uh, moves by truck, and about 85% of that 85% moves through Laredo, Texas. So Laredo, Texas, I was looking at some statistics uh, the other day. Laredo, Texas is actually the um, the second largest port by volume in the United States. Wow. After L.A. Long Beach. And uh, so that's a massive amount of trade. I mean, it's, you know, it's an amount of trade that is a multiple of U.S.-Japan trade. It's a multiple of U.S.-European trade. It's a huge amount of trade. Uh, and so people in Texas are keenly aware. We see those trucks, you know, passing through the state. To, uh, you know, there's a great, um, a great infographic prepared by the Texas Department of Transportation a year or so ago showing uh, kind of arterially how the trucks that come from through Laredo, where they go in the United States. And within, you know, within, in, in two days, uh, those trucks have reached northern Texas and Louisiana. By, by three or four days, they've reached Michigan. And, and so that trade goes everywhere in the United States. And so I think Texas is cleanly, keenly aware of the benefit of that trade to the state. Uh, that trade has created a logistics industry, a third-party logistics industry in Texas and in the Dallas area in particular that wouldn't have existed without that trade. 
And so, uh, so I think from that point of view, you know, the business community in Texas and, and Texans in general are keenly aware of the benefits of, of that close trade with Mexico. I think when you get down close to the border, what you find, uh, in my experience, having spent a lot of time in, in places like El Paso and, and Laredo, um, what you find is uh, integrated communities that straddle the border. I mean, Texas, uh, El Paso, Texas was a suburb of Juarez before it was called Juarez and, and before the U.S.-Mexico border existed. Uh, that, that was an urban area that straddled that river that came into existence in the 16th century. And so that is a community that is fully integrated where you have, you literally have uh, kids that commute across the border to go to school and at the University of Texas in El Paso. You have um, people who live in El Paso and work in Juarez or who live in Juarez and work in El Paso. Uh, it's not at all unusual for somebody who works in downtown El Paso to walk across the border for lunch and be back in his office or her office right after lunch. So it's a fully integrated community. And and I think in the, in the views of most people I've talked to who live down there, it works pretty well, and and they don't really they don't really get the sense of kind of urgency uh, about uh, about securing the border. I think after 9/11, you know, there was a, there was an attempt across both of our borders to really um, tighten controls and tighten checks, and 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 that system has worked itself out. People who cross the border frequently have got their frequent crosser cards, you know, border uh, nexus or whatever it's called, global entry, uh, and so on. So those, those systems have worked themselves out and people are comfortable with them. And I, and I, and I think that most, most people who actually live along the border uh, don't share the sense that there's, a, that there's a new crisis that needs to be dealt with in, in a new and unusual way. Uh, so, Matt, I'm saving my easiest question for last here, and that is, uh, this is something I've asked other guests recently on the show. Uh, do you think there's any chance that in the next two years, say before the 2020 presidential elections, that President Trump wakes up one day and decides, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and agree to a change on the deferred action of childhood arrival DACA, give the Democrats what they want if they agree to give me X billion dollars amount in the wall, thereby, I think, taking this issue effectively off the table for the 2020 election. What are the chances you think that may happen in the next 18 months? Gosh, I don't know. You're the one who lives in the Capitol. You tell me. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I feel like my own sense is that that issue is too valuable from the from a political perspective for, as a political issue. Um, and so my, I mean, my hope would be the answer to that question would be yes. But my guess is that the, that the politics of it are such that there's no, that the incentives don't line up uh, to move in that direction. I would also hope, um, you know, given if you thinking about it in terms of a negotiation for just a moment, you know, given that your negotiating partner, uh, let's imagine for a moment you're the leaders of the Democratic Party, your negotiating partner, President Trump, has has demonstrated to you that getting the border wall is worth everything. So I would, if I were them, want to get more than just DACA. I'd, I'd want comprehensive, something like comprehensive immigration reform. I'd want to do something about future flows. I'd want to do something about um, path to citizenship for all undocumented uh, persons in the United States, not states, not just DACA kids. Um, we need to we need to move away from this kind of family reunification based model of of immigration, which is where we've been since the 1950s, toward a model that's more driven by labor labor market needs. Um, 
you you, you look at the demographics of this country uh, and the fertility rates in this country, and uh, ultimately the dirty little secret of economic growth is that to have economic growth, you got to have a growing population. And so uh, in the absence of immigration, the United States doesn't have a growing population anymore. We have a stable population. Um, but uh, but I think we need immigration ultimately to grow and thrive as an economy. So I think, uh, you know, that's the big outcome and, and a, an outcome more along those lines that moves us toward a system of immigration that acknowledges our need for immigrants in order to grow and thrive our economy uh, for the coming decades. That is the right outcome. So, Matt, I hope you're not suggesting that the author of The Art of the Deal has somehow painted himself into a corner on this issue. He's a lot smarter than I am. I would never suggest that. <laughs> okay. Matt, thanks very much for joining me again on 35 West. Um, I look forward to them uncovering this podcast in 50 years to see if we were right. And then our, our descendants will, will take pride or shame in, in whatever is we said. But uh, thanks very much again for coming on 35 West. Thank you for having me, Richard. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode and make sure to subscribe to 35 West on iTunes and SoundCloud.